I invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. This is our third time of coming to this passage. A significant passage, a solemn passage in terms of the Gospel of Mark. Reading from the English Standard Version translation. Jesus is saying to his disciples, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their womb worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. If the salt has lo- but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we are coming to your word this morning, expecting because of your grace toward us that your Holy Spirit would work in us to understand your word. We know, Father, that apart from the working of your Holy Spirit in us and with us, uh, your word can be entirely something we do not grasp, we do not understand. But when your Spirit works with your word and works with us, we know that we can trust you to guide us into your truth. And for that we pray. Help us, Lord, then, to be attentive to your word. Help us to be receptive to your Spirit. But then, Lord, also with a heart motivated to pursue the things which build us up in our faith and faithfulness in following Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So as we come to the third section here in this particular passage, uh, we need to remember something of the larger context. We need to remember when this whole teaching began that that Jesus is giving here. Uh, On the very day, this goes back to Mark chapter 9, verse 33, On the very day that Jesus is coming into Capernaum, uh, his disciples are engaged in in a kind of a private discussion. It's actually an argument apart from the presence of Christ. Uh, What they're arguing about is the issue of who is the greatest among them. Uh, It's it's really an argument that's motivated by uh, a desire for the highest position, uh, motivated out of pride. Uh, a pride connected to be leadership within the kingdom of God. It's really a battle of egos that is taking place. Now, when you think about this in terms of where we are, we're into the third year of the ministry with Christ. In a few months, Jesus is going to the cross. This, these, this is the last part of the twelve being trained by Christ. And yet, here we see an actual, a very, very low point spiritually in terms of what the disciples are displaying. Their, their utter worldliness shows up in terms of this discussion and argument which they've had with each other. But then Jesus uses this, this point of human ugliness 
as a teaching opportunity about the kingdom and about their proper calling as disciples. So we need to keep that in mind as we consider what has happened coming up to the point of verses 49 and 50 today where our focus is going to be. Jesus used this opportunity to teach a series of of very pointed lessons with respect to the disciples. So when they gather into the house and into the room, the disciples are with Jesus. He he brings forth a little child, sets the child in front of him, and, and basically uses the child as an object lesson. And what he's saying to his disciples is that if, if anyone wants to be great, he has to be least. If anyone wants to be great, he has to be willing to serve the least. Greatness is to be found in service to those who are the least, and to serve the least is the path towards human spiritual greatness. So that was his first lesson. Now the second lesson occurs because the disciple John thinks about something, and it seems to be totally off base in terms of what Jesus is trying to say. It's really sort of a funny thing. Uh, It's what we often do when someone's really focusing upon uh, an important evaluation of who we are, and we don't like it, (laughs) we're feeling uncomfortable, we'll say, well, what about that guy? Well, that's what Jesus does. He raises this question. He says, you know, Lord, there is this this other guy who's not part of the disciples, not part of us. And, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was, quote, not following us. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he was not following us. That was the objection that John raised. And we note this, again, pride. Not following us. Uh, it's almost like this. We are the Jesus team. We're the only ones who are the Jesus team. No one else can play this kingdom game unless you're on our team. It was that kind of a perspective. And Jesus responds to that attitude by setting forth an either-or. He says, look, if someone is not against us, then he's for us. In essence, he was saying to the disciples, there are more on the Jesus team just for as disciples. If someone is not acting against us, then we must assume that he is for us. At least the beginning assumption ought to be. A charitable assumption ought to be. We have to take the fact that if he's not militantly against us, then he's really doing things that are for us, especially those who are doing such in Jesus' name. Well, the issue was that the disciples were being far too quick to exclude people. Far too quick to think that no one else could be doing the work of Christ unless they were part of And in teaching his disciples this, it's a lesson that was, has been forgotten so very often in the history of the church. How many times have we seen churches or movements that have basically said, if you're not doing exactly what we are doing, then you're probably not Christian, or you're probably not as good as we are, or you're probably not where you need to be spiritually. It's that kind of thing. There are people who say, we only recognize others as Christians if they're part of our particular band. Well, Jesus was addressing that. The disciples needed to understand that, that those in whom God is working are those who are going to faithfully name the name of Christ. They needed to be careful about too quickly condemning others. Well, the sections before we come to this last part here. 
We have the section we've been looking on from verses 42 through 50 now. Three sections. The first part, Jesus gave a warning about spiritual leadership being the cause of younger disciples stumbling and falling away from the faith. A warning. Better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck than that you would lead a younger disciple, a younger believer in me, astray. The second lesson is uh, you need to be careful about the fact that you can actually spiritually, spiritually ruin yourself. And so there he makes mention of, uh, of the hand and the foot and the eye. That is, these things that are valuable to you, precious to you, significant in your life, these are the very things that can also lead you astray and cause you to stumble if you consider these things to be more important than Christ himself. Now, in both of these lessons, Jesus was painting the seriousness of, of sin and causing others to sin against the backdrop of his descriptions of hell. Uh, there are two final destinies, Jesus was saying. There's a destiny that is life, eternal life, life in the kingdom. But on the other hand, there's this hell, this fire, this unquenchable fire. The way of eternal life is found in Jesus. It's found in following him. It's found in being his disciple. Uh, the way of eternal hell is to refuse to follow Jesus or to fall away from following Jesus or to value things of this life as more important than Jesus or the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, all of that is a background before we come to verses 49 and 50. This is the final warning of the passage. This is the climax of the passage. And Jesus is saying here that those who are his followers are going to be tested in difficult and severe ways. This means that they must be prepared for these trials. We're putting all three lessons together. It's like this. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to be leaders. Don't ever be the cause of a younger disciple falling and stumbling. But also, likewise, guard your own life and doctrine carefully so that you don't cause yourself to stumble. Because when you understand the nature of life, you will realize that there's all sorts of trials that life is going to hand you that might be causes for you to stumble and fall. So that's more or less what we find in this passage. Big picture would be something like this. When we come to verse 49 and 50, every follower of Christ is going to face severe trials. These will provide opportunities for stumbling and falling. But these will also be the very means by which we will develop proven faith and proven character. But that can only happen in and through a faithful and strong commitment to Christ. That's what's going on in verses 49 and 50. At the end of all, Jesus is basically saying, look, true discipleship is going to be tested there's the real possibility that people who think they're disciples are going to stumble and fall as they're tested by all sorts of things in life. But at the same time, the very things that might cause people to fall away are also the very things that are going to do the best work, the great work, the necessary work in the life of a believer. To cause the believer to have his faith tested and to have his character proven. Okay. So, two verses... 
but a number of lessons pertaining to these ideas. And all of this, by the way, remembering, is to address in the disciples their ungodliness, their pride, uh, the fact that up to this point they really demonstrate nothing that would qualify them as being spiritual leaders on behalf of others. So the first lesson, verse 49, discipleship will be tested. Now there's a textual question to begin with. If you've got a King James Version, New King James Version, you've seen this between verses 42 and 50. That what we read in the ESV or the NIV or the New American Standard, it reads differently. Some of you know why this is the case. But in terms of verse 49 itself, here's what's going on. The earliest Greek manuscripts have exactly what see in the ESV and the NIV and the New American Standard. For everyone will be salted with fire. That's all it says. Oldest manuscripts, some of the best manuscripts, that's all it says. But then there's also a small group of manuscripts that are also quite old, but they're not the best manuscripts. And those small say this, small numbers say this, every sacrifice will be salted with salt. So it's a different statement. It's not every one, but every sacrifice. And it's not with fire, but with salt. Scholars have noted how this seems to be based upon Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. Back in Leviticus, Moses is talking about the sacrifices. It says this, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. So that small group of manuscripts seem to be grabbing those verses and interpreting it in that way. Then we have the King James manuscript tradition. It seems to combine both of these together because it says exactly what the ESV says and then it says exactly what that small group says and it puts them together. Everyone shall be salted with fire and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. Now, Maybe that's a little more than you needed to know and understand this morning. But basically, to give you reasons why, if you have followed the King James, to understand why the ESV is entirely on target here for this reason. Every Jew already knew that every sacrifice had to be salted with salt. That tells the disciples nothing new at all. What they needed to know was that every one of them would be salt fire. That's the key teaching, and that's the new teaching that Mark's gospel brings at this point. So the statement of the ESV, a statement that is absolutely necessary in what Christ is saying, everyone will be salted with fire. Which is to say that our discipleship is going to be tested. Now, commentators have, have also noted that because of the textual problems and so forth, lots of different interpretations about this particular verse. One scholar said 15. But here's what's interesting. Out of all of those different interpretations, the ones that make the most sense share a consensus. And the consensus is this. The fire refers to testing. The fire exemplifies 
ways in which to Christ can be tested. So Jesus is saying that everyone who follows him, everyone who seeks to follow him, that commitment is going to be tested strongly by the conditions that we face in life. Now, in verses 43, 45, and 47, Jesus has already referred to this in a particular way when he talked about the hand, the foot, and the eye being causes or possible causes for stumbling. Even though those things, as Jesus mentions them, are good in and of themselves, if we prize these things more than following Jesus, then those things that we prize most in place of Jesus will in fact cause us to stumble and to fall away. So we can be tested, by the way, by very, very good things in life. Because if good things become such a blessing to us that we begin to treasure this more than we treasure Christ, treasure this in such a way that we would never want to give this up, then that can become something that stands in the way between us and Christ. And that would be a cause for stumbling and falling away. But also, our hands and our feet and our eyes can be instruments, obviously, of temptation. When, when I was reading through this, thinking about, thinking about the, the bad and the wrong and the things that can happen because of our, of our uh, hands, uh, because of our feet, because of our eyes. That little song I learned in vacation Bible school, you know, be careful little eyes what you see. Well, be careful little eyes what you see. There's a father up above and he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. And, of course, the other stanza is about your hands. The other stanza is about your feet. Casting crowns took that thought, that song, and and wrote a a, a very poignant piece called um, Slow Fade. And the lyrics go like this. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands as darkness pulls the strings. Be careful, little feet, where you go, for it's the little feet behind you that are sure to follow. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray and thoughts invade Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. And I thought that really captures the significance of what Jesus is teaching in terms of those things that are in this world that we can engage ourselves in And it begins to pull us further and further away from Christ. In other words, we are tested by those things which tempt us in this life. But we also need to see that this whole concept of trial, fire, fiery trial, really is is so broad that it encompasses all of the kinds of things in this which will test us as Christians. Uh, All those things that we could connect to the hardships of this life. 
struggles with health, struggles with people, struggles with relationships, uh, struggles because we've been victims of someone else or victims of atrocities or because we've experienced tragedies and loss or, as in a wide part of the world today, uh, those brothers and sisters who are experiencing direct persecution because of those who hate Christ and hate Christians. The point is this, that Jesus is teaching in this passage that all of these kinds of things will happen to those who follow him. All of these are fiery trials, which then leads into an understanding that such testing is the cost of following Jesus. On the one hand, Jesus has already laid it out that if we don't follow him, that's going to bring about terminal and eternal disaster. That's at the heart of verses 43 through 48. The terrible reality of hell ought to incentivize us toward Christ. But on the other hand, Jesus is not promising an easy life in following him. Back in chapter 8, verse 33, 34, Christ had said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And then verse 48, 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So there's a cost to following Christ. Self-denial, taking up of the cross, being salted with fire. Now, let me just mention this in regards to what we're covering here. Recently, I've had conversations with, with someone who was whose coming to Christ was out of a Christian culture that basically promised in Jesus you can become anything and everything you want to be. And the last several years have presented for him an incredible crisis of faith continually. In Christ, you can be anything you want to be. Christ will enable you to achieve all of your plans, all of your goals, everything you want. Just, just commit it to Christ. You'll get what you want. And so the counsel that I'm giving him is what is found in this passage. The truth and reality that we find here. God does not save us in Christ unto an easy life. Come to verse 49, we see the word fire, salted with fire. And we have to recognize that as the fire represents testing, what does the salt represent? If you look at it carefully, the English properly reflects what it says in the Greek. The salt is what the fire produces. Salt represents the desired or the valued outcome. To be salted by fire is to have the fire producing salt in us. 
It is the fiery trial that makes us salty. This is what seasons us as Christians. It's what makes us more of what we ought to be for Christ. And this is because all such test and testing, all of it, tests the quality of our faith and the quality of our character. Now, we we know this is the understanding of this passage because when we look at what Peter says and we look at what James says and we look at what Paul says, all three of them point us in this direction. So, uh, what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, talking about salvation, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Or James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then Paul, Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering, kind of trial, produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. So the outcome of the trial, what the trial produces, the nature of the salt is that of attested faith and proven character. All who are disciples will undergo such testing. It is the primary and principal part of God's way of sanctifying us, of changing us, of developing in us a precious and tested faith of greater worth than gold and of proven character that results to the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. Then going on to verse 15. Jesus warns about losing the benefit of what this testing is designed or supposed to produce. Jesus says this, verse 50, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we find something very similar to what Christ says. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, what Jesus says with respect to salt is based upon the kind of salt that was used in the ancient world. It was never the refined and pure salt like we have today in terms of our table salt, which is... 99% 99% NaCl. It's just, you know, it's, it's pure salt. Rather, it was a mixture with many impurities in it because it was, you know, directly from the ground, pulled off the Dead Sea, something like that. So it was very possible for the salt to be used in such a way that it would actually lose its genuine saltiness, but the form of the salt, the, the look of the salt, the shape of the salt would still be there. 
That's what Christ is referring to. The salt, the real salt, can be missing, even while the form of the salt, the saltiness, is gone, but the salt structure is still there. And when it was like that, it could never be re-seasoned. You couldn't inject the salt, the true salt, the chemical salt, back into the structure. It was functionally useless. Well, when they talk about being trampled under feet, they're actually meaning that you could use it as a kind of thing to dead kill things. So what does this mean? What is Jesus saying about discipleship and testing in light of this? Essentially, it's this. It's a warning. Jesus is warning that if, if the testing fails to produce the good salt that is the tested faith and proven character, then we do not have a genuine follower, someone who's genuinely following Christ. In the words of James, we have a failure of perseverance, or in the words of Peter, a faith, when it's tested, doesn't prove to be genuine. Now, in the disciples' own experience, they're going to see this, and they're going to see it rather soon. Uh, Judas will be tested. In that testing, he's tempted. And Judas betrays Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Later, the Apostle Paul is going to write a short but incredibly sad testimony about someone who was one of his co-workers. At the end of the book of Colossians, when Paul is writing all these greetings, he includes Demas, in his closing words to the Colossian church, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Then, a few short years later, in Paul's very last letter, 2 Timothy, he writes this to Timothy, and he says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Luke alone is with me. It's also a pattern that we see all through church history, but, it, but Jesus teaches about it during the time of the gospel. Uh, some who are followers of Christ will, in fact, turn back, fall away, not continue. That's what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 13 in the parable of a sower. In verse 20, Jesus wrote, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. But even closer, right in the, during the time of Jesus' own ministry, in John chapter 6, uh, when Jesus finishes the bread of life discourse, uh, verse 60, we read, When many of his disciples heard it, this bread of life discourse, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And then five verses later, six verses later, verse 66, the outcome. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The truth that we find in the Gospels and in the New Testament is that there will be seasonal disciples. Which is to say, there will be some who will follow Jesus for a season. But when the trials become too difficult, when the cost seems too high, when the teaching gets too demanding, 
they will turn away from Christ. This is why Peter said, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Paul, echoing the same thought, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So in these warnings, you know, Peter and Paul are following the teaching of Jesus, who warns those who would follow him to make sure that the testings we face produce faith, a proven faith, and character, the character which God desires. Now, last part, verse 50. Uh, we can call this verse the wrap-up. This is Jesus' conclusion and application of essentially everything that he's been saying to the disciples from that first lesson when he placed a child in front of him. Uh, two succinct commands to wrap everything up. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, Christ is saying through these two commands, this is the application of everything that I've said. Uh, this is what I've been teaching you. Uh, this is what solves the arguments that you've been having with each other. First place, have salt in yourself. Well, in order for the disciples to be the kind of leaders who can lead the church and not cause young believers to fall away, who can lead the church and not corrupt themselves by what their hand, foot, and eye might do. In order for them to be those kind of leaders, they need to have the kind of faith and the kind of character that is tested and proven. They need to have that kind of salt in themselves. They need to be the kind of men that when they're tested by the difficulties of life or tempted by the worldliness of life, or even tempted and tested by the things that they might value so much in this world, that they're going to stand firm and faithful with Jesus. So, have salt in yourselves. Because if you don't, then you're going to lead others astray. And if you don't, you're going to lead yourself astray. If you don't, you're going to corrupt your ability to be any kind of leader within the church. So, they've been thinking about rank. They've been thinking about power. They've been thinking about position. They've been thinking about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus is saying, leadership is not about any of those things at all. Leadership is about serving, and serving requires character. It's about character. If you have character, then a younger believer can follow you. If you have character, then you'll be protected against the things that might lead you astray. If you have character, then you're not going to be involved in stumbling yourself. So to have salt within themselves, that's the kind of thing that's going to enable them to have a godly influence upon each other. That's what the disciples need. They need to counter their pride, counter all of this by having salt in themselves. And then Jesus gives a second commandment. He says, be at peace. So they've been in conflict. They've been arguing with each other. They've been sowing a divisive spirit among them. 
They've been seeing who can be first in the competition of leadership in the kingdom. What they needed to be was concerned for each other. What they needed to be was seeking true harmony and peace with each other. They needed to counter their pride. They needed to counter their self-serving attitudes and posturing. Yet, here's what we have to see with respect to this wrap-up. If we did not have the rest of the gospel completed and finished in terms of what takes place after the resurrection of Jesus, we would be left thinking that we have to do this in ourselves and by ourselves. Jesus commands it, therefore i got to do it. But we can read the rest of the gospel account and and though Jesus is going to hit these things several more times with his disciples, you don't see much change. You really don't see much change in their lives until after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and then most profoundly, the day of Pentecost on. It is though that during the time that the disciples are being trained by Jesus, we see very little that separates their character from the character of the world. But when the gospel reaches its climactic fulfillment in the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, when they encounter the full gospel and the resurrected Christ, everything changes with respect to them which is really what we have to recognize in terms of the lesson, that given the commandments to have salt in ourselves and to be at peace with one another is nothing but law unless we have the gospel for us and the gospel working with us. That's what we need to appreciate as we think about what Jesus is saying here. Because apart from what God has done for you in Christ, and apart from what God does in you in Christ, we have no ability to have this kind of salt in us that can be a tested faith and proven character. We have no real ability to be at peace with one another apart from what the gospel does for us in Christ. The gospel declares to us that we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because it's God who is at work within us us to will and to do his good pleasure. We're told in a promised way that this gospel is about God working in us all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. It's this gospel that tells us that we're not doing this on our own and by ourselves, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It's the gospel that declares to us, we did not work up faith in Jesus, but trusting in Christ was something that God by His Spirit enabled us to do, and by His Spirit continues to enable us to do. It's the gospel that God, according to his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Everything that the disciples were going to become after the resurrection of Christ was to be found in the power of the gospel. What God has done for us through Christ, living for us, dying for us, paying for our sin, establishing our justification, and then Christ by his Holy Spirit working through us and in us that we might do those things that are pleasing to him. It is all of God's grace in the gospel through Christ for us. Amen. Father, help us to always read your word through the lens of what you have done for us in Christ. To always understand that all things which Jesus did, he did for us, for our salvation. That you might be claiming us as trophies of your grace and of your work in your Son. So that even our faith and our perseverance and our character development in Christ would all be because of your work in us. Father, enable us then to be faithful to Jesus this day, every day, to his glory. Amen.